Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm David Lipton. And I'm Ada Yee. Today our guest is Randy Buckner, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Harvard University. In this episode, we will talk about the unsurprising, surprising role of the prefrontal cortex in memory, the rapid expansion of association cortex in humans, and what to do with a quarter in an MRI machine. All this and more coming up. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and how you decided you wanted to become a scientist? Yeah, I grew up in New York, uh, originally uh, from New York City, and then moved out onto the island. And I've always been interested in science. Actually, uh, since I was in high school, we had a, a research program, and I actually got to work in a laboratory in high school in the University of Iowa. And I was hooked from the very beginning. Um, I had a you know a couple of moments where I thought about other areas at the time. Investment banking was quite big when I was going to college. But <laughs> I had the science bug almost since the beginning. Do you remember a particular moment that you, you knew this is just for you? Uh, I think one of the more memorable th- things for me was when I was a child, I used to go to the Exploratorium in San Francisco. Mm. And uh, you know, if I have to pick a moment, that experience was it. I just thought that was the coolest thing I'd seen. Mm-hmm. I've gone back uh, more recently, and we, we have a science museum here that I take my kids to, and it's, it's amazing what impact just being exposed to science and experiments and engaging that curiosity you can have. And I think for me, my curiosity uh, traces back to, to the Exploratorium in San Francisco. So how were you in San Francisco? You grew up in New York, right? I did. Part of my family lived in San Francisco, so I got go out there for a bit. I see. So now you're doing neuroscience. Was there a moment when you decided that you were so interested in the brain, or was this an accident? Not an accident. I think actually the, the, the interest in neuroscience, brain science, emerged during college. And, I, and actually, I, I distinctly remember a course in neuropsychology where I learned about the phenomena of amnesia, the famous case study of HM studied by Brenda Milner um, in, in the 50s that described how a specific part of the brain could be critical for a selective function like memory. That just fascinated me. And I think that's when I decided to go into memory research as my main initial topic. We've Our work's broadened out a bit since then, but my initial focus was on how is it that we learn and remember. Mm-hmm. Did you do research in college? Yeah, yeah. Since I was a freshman, I was always in the laboratory mm-hmm. from day one. Human uh, work like you do now, or were you doing uh, natural? No, work? no. I, I, I studied uh, in a behavioral laboratory. Um, uh, I worked with pigeons. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, specifically, my project was on something called the matching law, uh, mm-hmm. trying to figure out how it is that, and this applies to pigeons, mice, rats, humans, all of us, we tend to act more when there's a larger number of reinforcers being given at a location than another location. And this could be physically if you're an animal's foraging for food, or it could be actually in a human world, in the social world, if one person is smiling at you twice as much as another person, you'll tend to look at them twice as much. And uh, my work is on trying to understand how that allocation of behavior emerge. And it's something called the, the matching law that was described by Hernstein many decades ago. And already 20 years ago, we were trying to understand how was it that the momentary effects of, of, of reinforces cause animals or humans to allocate their behavior so that they actually do this kind of matching where they spend much time when they get twice as much reinforcement. It's relevant actually to Stanford because Bill Newsom's laboratory had a wonderful paper several years ago where they looked at the physiology of the matching phenomenon right. in monkeys. The interesting thing about that paper for me was 
uh, not just the physiology, but the beautiful behavioral work where they explored this matching phenomenon. And when we had explored it, and there was an active group of researchers across the field trying to understand how animals allocate behavior and get this beautiful pattern, which we call matching, and we couldn't solve it. But actually, Bill Newsom's group, I think, actually provided a very elegant behavioral solution to the problem because they came at it from a different, a completely different direction. And the difference was this, is when we were doing our studies, we would put an animal on a schedule for a long period of time, many weeks. So it might be the case that in the case of pigeons, you'd have them being reinforced twice as much when they pecked on a red key and half as much when they pecked on a green key. And you'd leave them on that schedule for weeks. Turns out that's the worst way to go after this problem. When you're in steady state and nothing's changing, it's very hard to figure out what the effect is from the individual reward pellet that a pigeon gets and actually how it changes its behavior. What Bill Newsom's group did is they actually changed the schedules pretty frequently. So they would be on one schedule where they get rewards at a certain rate, but then they would change that. And that dynamic shift in schedules helped them solve the behavioral problem. And so there's a connection even between my early work and the work going on in your neck of the woods. And so do you think that's just a function of memory? They just forget and they can't add up anymore? Or do you think that's it's something else about the frequency? Well, I, th- I think the explanation that was in the Newsom Lab paper right. is probably the right one, that when you're in steady state and things aren't changing, that each individual event has very little significance. You know, everything is pretty much the same. When things are dynamic, events become much more salient. They become much more informative. And it's through the dynamic schedule that you can actually see that how the animal is using the information it gets from an event. When nothing's changing week to week to week, there's just you know, not much of effect of a, you know, a single pellet of food. Yeah. And was this research in Professor Green's lab, by yeah. chance? Len Green. <laughs> gotcha. you know, Green was your professor? Yeah, I, I didn't do research with him, but I, I took a class with him. And um, became uh, very close with them. And the, the class actually really sparked my interest in the brain. So I guess only so many people work with pigeons. Right? <laughs> I knew as soon as he started talking who it was. <laughs> yeah, Len Green is a great professor. Actually, if you go across the field, I think there's a lot of us who got our start in Len Green's laboratory. That's really good to hear. Well, I can certainly <laughs> see why. <laughs> So after you finished college, you decided to go to graduate school. You stayed in Washington, and you were working in Steven Peterson's lab there at Washington University. And that's when you really started working on the prefrontal cortex in memory encoding and retrieval. So can you tell us a little bit about that and why you joined that lab? At Washington University, I was fortunate because brain imaging, and at that time with PET, positron emission tomography, had just gotten started. And I was an undergraduate, and I had volunteered to be in an experiment to make money. You get paid $50 to be in an experiment. (laughs) Me and many of my friends would, would do these pet experiments to get a little bit of a, a pocket change. And I learned about the technique at that time as Marcus Raikel and Steve Peters were doing some of the landmark studies on language and attention. Uh, and I, I, I was a subject in one of those studies. And so I learned about brain imaging before there really was much out there, before it had really been applied to the study of memory. And here I was as an undergraduate, fascinated by memory. I decided I wanted to go into research and I explored a number of laboratories. Now, some laboratories that were uh, using animal models of memory, specifically primate models. There was remarkable work coming out, for example, out of Larry Squire and Stuart Zola's laboratory at UCSD, and that was a very exciting time for that work, and I was very interested in in their laboratory. I was also interested in uh, neuropsychological laboratories where uh, individuals uh, with brain lesions were being studied to understand how happenstance lesions might tell us something about the relationship between brain structures and memory. And then there was this bizarre new technique, positron emission tomography, going on where I was at Washington University, 
And I thought it was really exciting and, and basically went uh, to Mark Rakel and Steve Peterson uh, and asked them if I could join the laboratory. And that's how I got my start. And I was just at the right place at the right time. I think I just knew about this new technique early and there you know, hadn't been any memory work done at that point. Early on in my graduate career, there's a, a landmark study of the collaboration between Mark Rakel, Steve Peterson and Larry Squire. And uh, I was able to jump on board and start to do uh, work in, in, in their laboratory. At the time, you know, everybody takes this for granted, but it was the first time you could lie somebody down and uh, safely make measurements of their brain at work. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier a couple times that uh, you were inspired by these studies on uh, the patient HM where they actually took out part of the temporal lobe and that's really how they started to realize that the hippocampus and the temporal lobe are, are very highly associated with memory. However, for your graduate work, you were working on the prefrontal cortex and that's an area that I, you know, as a student, I've been taught um, is more involved with high-level cognition and decision-making. So at the time you started doing this work, what was known about the prefrontal the cortex and moreover you know what was thought about its involvement in memory why were you studying it it's a, it's a great it's a great question and, and actually um, we were not going out to study prefrontal cortex and the role of prefrontal cortex in memory we were going after the hippocampus mm-hmm. uh, at the time uh, the phenomenon of amnesia you know, as we just wonderful work that led to Nobel prizes uh, in a number, number of areas of uh, of research that have shown the importance. Right. Very recently. Yeah. <laughs> Yesterday. Uh, uh, have shown the role of the hippocampus in place memory, but in humans, much more general forms of memories you see in amnesia. And so when we were going after, we were doing these initial PET studies to look at memory function. Our hypothesis, our strong expectation was that the medial temporal lobe would uh, reveal its involvement in these processes. The beauty of functional brain imaging and probably the most important aspect, especially in those early days of the work, is that we were having people lying a scanner and getting broad pictures of all of their brain regions while they were doing these tasks, allowing us to capture glimpses of systems that we weren't thinking about. And so when you ask the question, what made us go after prefrontal cortex? We didn't. We went after the hippocampus, but we scanned the whole brain. And what jumped out Study after study after study was these much broader systems, in particular involving prefrontal cortex, that were involved when people encoded information that is memorized things and also when they retrieved. And that was a surprise. And in retrospect, it probably shouldn't have been a surprise. There was precedence, at least uh, in, in understanding that prefrontal contributions is the strategic aspects of retrieval from studies in neuropsychology. But it was a surprise to us. And, and my actual thesis followed up on that surprise. And the answer, I think, is, is a relatively straightforward one, is that acts of memory are active cognitive functions when you're, especially when you're trying to remember and you're elaborating on materials as is important for memorization or when you're strategically trying to retrieve. While we tend to to pigeonhole different functions in terms of their labels like memory, this is a strategic, effortful cognitive process, a controlled process, and prefrontal cortex and, and association circuits in general play critical roles and interact with medial temporal structures to realize memory. Is this true for both encoding and retrieval, or uh, is it more one or the other? It's true for both encoding and retrieval, and depending on the exact kind of memory task you do, you can actually see distinctions in the brain systems that are used during memorization and separate systems that come online when you're trying to retrieve from memories. Okay, there's two questions I have. First is that you're saying that the prefrontal cortex uh, gets active during these very active processes. So I just wanted to clarify. So in contrast to, for example, if we have just visual input and there's sensory information, maybe the prefrontal cortex isn't as engaged or that's a less strategic 
activity? Is that what you would say is the case? Like, what's the control in that case? In this regard, memory is a very interesting thing. Yeah. And plasticity in the brain is a very interesting thing, especially when we're talking about memory and coding. Mm -hmm. It's not the case that memory and coding itself is a task. It is true as students, or you know, probably the most extreme is medical students, mm -hmm. um, they spend a lot of time intentionally trying to memorize things. But by and large, memory is a byproduct, a secondary effect of the kind of information processing that you're doing all the time. And what I mean by that is as you go through the day, you have lots of experiences, you interact with people, you engage, you know, different materials, whether they're be they're, they're written or in a conversation. And at the end of the day, you've memorized lots of that. You can tell people about the day. You didn't try to memorize. You didn't try to stop and encode. Encoding occurs incidentally. It's secondary, and it, it shows you something important about brain function is that there can be multiple things, multiple beneficial things happening at once. You can be engaging in the here and now, doing things that are benefiting you in the moment, listening to somebody, talking to them, thinking about things in the moment to help you right now. But also, that act of information processing is laying down a trace, changing the brain so that it's, it benefits you later. That's what memory encoding is. Most memorization takes place secondarily from the active tasks that you do. And we know that the best way to memorize things is to elaborate on them. This is something that William James wrote about in his classic work, Principles of Psychology. He has a beautiful passage where he talks about how you need to elaborate, think about things in depth and context, paraphrase them, weave them into other thoughts. Uh, just repeating things is not a great strategy for memorization. Thinking about them, making them distinct is. And he wrote this as a lesson to students to tell them why cramming doesn't work so well. Uh, in his words, not mine, he says, there's no moral turpitude in cramming. If it, if it worked well, it would surely be the best strategy, but it's not. Students should know why. It's that kind of elaboration, that kind of controlled exploration that requires prefrontal cortex. And so it's not surprising when we have somebody lie in a scanner and do a task where they uh, memorize things that you see these prefrontal processes engaged. I think at the time it might have been surprising, but in retrospect, it's one of these things. Uh, how could it be any other way? We know that you need to elaborate and effortfully uh, expand on things to memorize them, and, and that's what these control systems, these prefrontal systems support. Do you think this is a unique trait of humans? Do humans uniquely use their prefrontal cortex? I don't know how much other systems have the same prefrontal cortex while doing this memory encoding and retrieval. Well, I think the act of intentional memorization, stopping and trying to memorize things, may be unique in humans. I don't know that. Mm -hmm. But it's also the case that most memorization doesn't take place because we intentionally memorize. Right. It's just secondary. So in that regard, I suspect there's more similarities between us and uh, at least our close relative, the primates, and, and, and similarities generally across all mammals. That said, we do know that association cortex, prominently including prefrontal cortex, uh, sees a disproportionate expansion as you go across larger-brained animals, as you go from mouse to primate, and then from primate to great ape to human. Mm -hmm. And our association cortices, prefrontal cortex being a major component of this, is dramatically expanded relative to that our close cousins. So can you go into a little bit more detail about your findings from this early work on memory and the prefrontal cortex? What we discovered initially is that there was a hierarchy in prefrontal cortex where more posterior regions seem to be engaged during simpler tasks when you're, for example, dealing with or elaborating on verbal materials of any type. But when you now make the task more difficult and have an individual recall from memory, you engage 
these higher order areas that tend to be more interior when you have to do a controlled process, such as thinking back to something that happened yesterday or that you learned yesterday. And this was a puzzle at the time, and there's been a lot of work on it since. But what we noticed is simply that these interior regions became engaged when people remember. And the best guess is, is that remembering is one example of a broad set of tasks where effectively you're having to juggle multiple processing demands thinking about the here and now and thinking about yesterday and going back and forth and not confusing the two. Some people were called this kind of processing branching. You see these highest order interior prefrontal regions engaged during these very difficult tasks where you're effectively juggling task demands when you're doing one thing and then another and switching between the two and, and, and trying not to confuse the demands. When you're remembering, you're uh, inherently doing that. You're, you're aware of the present, what's going on. You think to your past, you recall as you disengage the present and you, you build a model in your mind and then you come back to the yeah. present. In the healthy brain, you don't confuse these things. So would you say that this might be some type of general topographic organization of the prefrontal cortex, similar to how sensory cortices are organized according to body part, this conceptual higher orderness of thought? The organization the kind of topography that you're talking about in visual cortex, for example, retina topy yeah. or in a somatosensory cortex in terms of the body space topography, that's within an area. It's a division of labor within a map, within a single area, and those maps tend to reproduce across areas. Uh-huh. I think... I think that this hierarchy is more parallel to how you see a hierarchy in processing functions across different visual areas. So not about the topography within an area, but probably more akin to how you have higher order areas and the extension of the visual system as you get the parietal cortex area, LIP, you tend to get what looks like top-down control signals going back to visual areas. And so this principle of hierarchical organization is very general across the brain. It's probably a bit unique when you get to association cortex and prefrontal cortex, but this general principle of hierarchical processing across areas, I think, is general across the cortical mantle. That also links back a little bit to evolution. For development people, we think of some of the more anterior structures being newer. Actually, can I just clarify um, yeah, sure. an issue there? It's a great question, but yeah. we've been talking as if the epicenter for evolutionary expansion is prefrontal cortex, and that there's this large anterior to posterior gradient, which there might be an element of. But actually, if you look at cortical expansion, it's not just prefrontal cortex. It's all of association cortex that expands as you go from rodent to primate to human. What I mean by that is parietal association cortex. The inferior parietal lobule is disproportionately expanded, as is the temporal lobe. And it's true, over the last couple decades, there's been more emphasis on the prefrontal expansion. But prior to that, when you look at models of language functions, such as the Wernicke-Geschwin model, they were harping on the fact that in the earliest days of comparative anatomy by Corbinian Brodmann, mm-hmm. there are regions in parietal association cortex and inferior parietal lobule that he thought were unique in humans. I don't think they're unique. I think they're dramatically expanded. Mm-hmm. But I just want to clarify, we often hear that, that it's prefrontal cortex that's almost selectively expanded, but that's actually not accurate. It's, right. it's association cortex. And and that's important because there are distributed regions of association cortex, temporal lobe, parietal, and also prefrontal cortex that seem to be proportionally expanded together as you go up the brain size spectrum. And that gets into your recent paper I read discussing the tethering hypothesis. So in some sense, from the, the work we were just talking about, our early days studying brain networks involved in memory retrieval, where we were emphasizing the prefrontal contributions, as we looked these kind of uh, functions more carefully in the networks, we realized that we were emphasizing just one component of broader distributed networks. Uh And there's a number of networks that are involved in higher level cognition 
that involve prefrontal components, parietal association components, and temporal association regions. Our estimates from looking at comparative anatomy in the macaque is that these are distributed circuits that have direct anatomical projections that form sort of re-entrant uh, loops with one another. This is something uh, Pat Goldman Rakish pointed out in a, a beautiful uh, review paper in the Annual Review of Neuroscience uh, a few decades ago, that these are distributed circuits. And when we started to probe these higher-level cognitive functions in more detail, whether that be remembering or related functions, we noticed that almost all of these functions depend on these distributed association networks. They always involve a prefrontal, a parietal association, a temporal association, and a midline component. And a lot of our work over the last decade has tried to understand the architecture of these networks and their functional roles. And there actually are multiple networks that are closely adjacent to one another, and they seem to work together in certain contexts and even compete in other contexts. And so we spent a lot of time trying to understand these the architecture of these very special distributed association networks. Now, I say they're special because they're unlike visual hierarchies. When you look at the organization of the visual system, you tend to see that areas project to nearby areas. They're, they do project at distances. There are long-range projections, and they've been emphasized more. The extent of them has been emphasized more recently. But they tend to be local hierarchical circuits. When you get to these higher-order association networks, they tend to have a very different property. They tend to be widely distributed across the brain. They actually lack the kind of typical feed-forward, feedback architecture that you see in sensory systems. And when you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, they tend to be the regions that have dramatically expanded in primate, now hominin to human evolution. And this just absolutely fascinated us. Yeah. One thing that fascinated me is I, just from what I know of work in developmental biology, some of the processes like axon guidance just seem like such evolutionary conserved and really complicated developmental processes. So how could you have these long-range connected areas that seem to have evolved quickly yet rely on potentially such complicated changes in development? As a whole, development is extraordinary. It almost seems magical that from a genetic code played out in you know the typical conditions, you can get such an exquisite and extraordinary architecture that underpins you know, all the things that we can do from, from our ability to think, to read, to, to plan, to remember. And so in that sense, I do have that same magical sense as you, as it's extraordinarily complicated. But the, the one thing one learns when one looks at development and evolution is that the fundamental rules and principles tend to be simple and get expanded and built upon and tweaked by evolution. And evolution does not have an unlimited set of parameters that it could tweak. And so in our recent work, we've actually asked how simple might the rules be and the changes be that could allow for this extraordinary expansion of association cortex. And what I mean by that is uh, we started to wonder is just how far you can get in terms of emergent circuit properties or expansion of certain circuit properties, if you imagine that rules of development and rules of wiring might stay largely the same, but now get played out in an ever-expanding cortical mantle, a larger brain, you know, do they play out in different ways simply because they're, the environment they're being played out in is, is now different? And that's different than looking for lots of very specific changes, idiosyncratic changes, mosaic changes that would lead to this new architecture. Surely there's a combination of both. 
But uh, our work is actually trying to look for simple explanations. Back at Washington, you were working on something that was called the default mode network. And if I understand correctly, this is a network of brain regions, since we're talking about networks anyway, um, that are selectively active when an individual focuses their attention inward, basically ignoring the external environment. And so you dissected a lot of the anatomic and functional divisions of the default mode network and have argued actually that this network is disrupted in various uh, cognitive disorders such as autism schizophrenia, and Alzheimer's. So could you maybe describe a little bit of the evidence for this and how it is that this network is disrupted in disease? The default network is a network of brain regions that it seems that most of us will use when we're just left to our own devices and think to ourselves. Mm -hmm. It has a number of interesting properties. This is a set of distributed association networks. It's heavily interconnected with the limbic system, with the hippocampus, and also to some degree with the amygdala, which I find very interesting because the network is not heavily interconnected with sensory systems. And so here you have a set of distributed association networks to some degree detached from direct inputs from the outside world, but heavily interconnected with memory systems. And so from that starting point alone is you have circuit properties that may be amenable to processing and internal processing that involves bits and pieces of information from memory more so than from the external world you know, in the moment. The network is active when you think to yourself. In that sense, it takes on its current form of its name, the default network, because it's what you default to using when you're not giving an external task. But it's not only used when you think to yourself. This is the network that is used when somebody asks you to remember something from yesterday or somebody asks you to think about what you're doing tomorrow. In all of these cases, you're detaching from the external world, from the here and now, and building a mental a simulation, a mental model about something that might happen or something that did happen. It's what humans seem remarkably good at doing. And I hope you're paying attention to my thoughts when I speak here, but if your mind wanders off and you drift and think about other things, at least I know you're doing the right experiment, you're probably using your default. <laughs> so everything I just mentioned is more of an empirical observation. We know that this network is used when you think to yourself. We know that this network is used when we ask people to remember their past. We know this network is used when we ask people to think about what they might do later. So how does the connection between the default network and disease, in particular Alzheimer's disease, arise? And that was a serendipitous observation. It was completely by accident. My laboratory was studying brain networks involved in memory, but we were also trying to understand how memory becomes disrupted in Alzheimer's disease and aging. And we had access to uh, some of the first images of amyloid deposition in Alzheimer's disease in the living human brain. Uh, you may know that Alzheimer's disease is associated with amyloid plaques and tangles that, that are made up of the protein tau. In, until recently, the way you diagnosed Alzheimer's disease was to actually look in the postmortem brain for these hallmark signatures of pathology. In 2004, there was a, a major breakthrough. Chet Mathis, Bill Clunk, and colleagues developed a compound called Pittsburgh Compound B, or what we refer to as PIB, that could be used to image amyloid in a living individual. And in 2004 and 2005, the first images became available, and we were able to get this running at Washington University. And when we looked at the images of amyloid deposition, where amyloid forms in the earliest stages of Alzheimer's disease, it looked like we were looking at a map of the default network. And so that started an exploration to try to understand why is it that the, the network that that 20-year-olds use when they think to themselves or remember is also the network that shows the first signs of amyloid pathology in a 70-year-old with Alzheimer's disease. And the answer, there's, there isn't a resolution to this question, but one thought 
is that the pathology in Alzheimer's disease to some degree is influenced by metabolism and brain activity levels. And these regions that are so active in, in most of us most of the time are the first to build up amyloid pathology in the cortex. So we, we were talking earlier about the associational cortices and then now talking about this functional default network. How well do they map onto each other? It's a great question. The default network is made up of multiple association networks, but there are also association networks that are not in the default network. It is the case that when we're talking about the default network, we're talking about a set of brain regions networks that are used for higher level cognition. They tend to have this form of these association networks, that they're widely distributed regions. The default network regions are some of those the regions that are, are tremendously expanded in hominin evolution. But it's also the case that there are association networks that are not part of the default network. And so it's not the case that all association networks are of the default network. Often when I talk about this work, I won't actually mention the word default network. I'll simply talk about these association networks that are expanded that participate in processes like remembering, planning, that are also used when you think to yourself, because they are a specialized set of association networks. I actually find it a little bit confusing if I try to go back and forth between talking about the structure of association networks and then separately this concept of the default network, because they sort of are overlapping concepts. In terms of just the function of the default network, I mean, earlier you were speaking about how the default network is heavily interconnected with the limbic system and not so much with the sensory cortices. If one thinks of memory as storage of sensory representations, I'm wondering how one can plan and, and remember without directly accessing where these sensory representations are stored. That, that's a great question. So there's a strong evidence, actually my own thesis was on this question, that these association networks do interact with sensory systems, for example, when you're having a, a vivid visual memory. And uh, when you do remember something that you saw earlier, you'll tend to use secondary extrastriate visual regions, high-level visual regions during that kind of retrieval. Even though these higher-order association networks interact with distributed networks that involve many sensory systems, those interactions are, in some sense, I think, a bit distant. And these networks have the property that they're anatomically connected to one another and receive inputs and indirect connections from many sensory systems, but it's not sort of the, their, their closest partners and they're not operating as networks that are, that are intimately connected with these sensory systems, even though they seem to be able to interact with them as needed. Many neuroscientists sort of have argued both in favor and against the existence and function of the default network, especially when some of the findings were first being published. And I wondered if you had any response to some of the criticisms. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because the, the original debate really isn't about what the focus of the current field is today. The original debate centered around a technical issue, uh -huh. a technical issue of neuroimaging. And because you need to make a comparison to see relative changes in brain activity levels. You need to contrast one brain state to another. And the technical debate was how do you build that brain state? And so some laboratories were using passive rest as their sort of their absolute reference brain state. Other laboratories didn't like the idea of rest where you didn't know what was going on. And so there's a pretty intense debate going back now, geez, it has to be 20 years or so. And it was all about what's the best kind of control condition, what's the best kind of reference condition in a neuroimaging experiment. The default network is a set of brain regions that are active when you're at rest, when you remember, 
when you think about the future, I don't think there's much debate about this at that point. There, there's a network of brain regions. I, I don't recall anybody disputing whether these regions exist. There's a, a lot of discussion about what the functional role of this network is and how it relates to other functions. And, and in that sense, it's much like many areas of our exploration of higher level cognition, especially in these expanded regions of the human brain. We just know so little. But the original debate about how to best design a baseline task for a neuroimaging study, I think, is now almost only of historical interest. So um, I think we touched already a little bit about your upcoming lecture. Is there anything you wanted to add, you know, as a preview? We covered a lot of it. I, I, we didn't talk specifically about what, I'm, what my talk will be on, which is mostly this recent idea, just as a, a little snippet, is having now spent two decades looking at the architecture of these distributed association networks that are widely expanded in primates and humans in particular, we began to wonder how they got here. And so my lecture will be on one theory, certain to be inaccurate in details, but one theory about how a distributed set of regions might have expanded proportionally in evolution and why this expansion may have been a foundational event for a higher order cognition and the special kinds of functions that emerge in, in the hominin line, such as language and our ability to imagine, uh, which we do see protoforms of in other species, but these are things that are dramatically expanded in humans mm -hmm. compared to even our closest relatives, the great apes. Great. Well, now we uh, go into a portion of the interview that we um, call rapid fire. We just asked a series of quick questions. The first is, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, what advice would you give to yourself specifically? Have fun. I think the more one is passionate about the work, the, the more the deeper you're going to get into it, harder you're going to work, and that's where discoveries come from. Great. Okay, the next one. This might be kind of silly. So my colleagues have, who have worked in MRI labs have famously told me that if you wear even the least bit of metal in the room, you'll feel a tug. And as you were telling us, you, you yourself have been a subject in many human studies. Any stories about smuggled metal? Or Fortunately, I've never actually had a, an event where we accidentally brought metal into the scanner. But we do know a, a number of different MR tricks that we can do. For example, if you take a quarter and bring an MRI scanner, it'll fall very slowly. A quarter won't get pulled into the magnet. But you'll see it actually fall almost like it's in slow motion. And, and that's, a, that's a good MR trick to impress your friends. But don't bring metal into the magnet. <laughs> so this is a question that we wrote before I read your one of your papers called The Serendipitous Discovery of the Brain's Default Network. And the question was, the history of science is filled with stories of accidental discoveries. What is your favorite accidental discovery? So if the answer is anything other than the title of that paper, feel free to uh, so, so, uh, chime in. I'd say that almost one of the hallmark features of, of my career has been that I've listened to the data. We, we, we explore human brain function. We have ideas yeah. of what we're going to find. When we first started memory research, we were looking for the hippocampus. We found prefrontal cortex. When we were looking for brain areas active during tasks, we found brain areas active during rest. When we were looking for memory disruption in Alzheimer's disease, we found the default network. All of these things were unexpected. The thing we did is we showed up to work and we just explored. That's great. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today, Professor Buckner. Oh, thank you. And thank you all for listening. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and myself. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk, as well as our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, west.org. Thank <laughs> you.